0: If you're a regular Farmers Inside Track listener, you'll know that we've covered everything from aquaculture to crops. This week, we're marrying the two to share a quick and easy guide to starting your very own aquaponics farm. Now, aquaponics, of course, comes with steep electricity costs. Energy expert James Stain warns that should ESCOM continue to deteriorate with limitations on new generation capacity, Stage 8 load shedding is possible. Now, can I get a drum roll, please? We're back with Meadow Feeds, who farmers turn to for much more than just feed. Vian Kurzhoff, ruminant technical advisor at Meadow Feeds, unpacks the importance of the dry period in the dairy cow's lactation cycle. This week, he explains the importance of this transition. Our book of the week, The Farming Handbook by Barry Smith. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Konsei Moraba agricultural economist and strategy and operations analyst at one of Mzanzi's leading agrochemical
1: companies. This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzanzi. Inspiration for your business and life.
2: From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs.
0: Hey, I'm Zanzi, and welcome to episode 120 of Farmers Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. I'm Dawn Numdu, the Manager for Audience and Engagement at Foodform Zanzi. Let's get straight into it with that promise guide to starting your aquaponics farm. Nicole Ludolf chats to Neil Stach from Aquaculture
1: Innovations. Thank you so much, Dawn. Neil, how did you end up in aquaponics?
3: Eleven years ago, I came across this thing called aquaponics. And because it's such a measured science, you know, you have to measure everything, the qualities and so on. I got very interested in it because it suits the engineering mind to a certain extent. So I got involved in the aquaponics and I built a little hobby system in my back garden. I followed YouTube mistakes and all of those. And so the aquaponics grew on me and as it grew, I improved the system and so on. And then eight years ago, I started writing training modules to help people along the way so that they don't have to make the same mistakes as what we did. That expanded to where I had no more space in my garden in Centurion. I then acquired a piece of ground. Today we have a commercial-sized system where we plant 80,000 plants purely aquaponically. We use rainbow trout as the fish of our choice.
1: With temperatures getting more extreme, is it then advisable for people to always have some type of temperature regulation happening?
3: It's very hard to regulate the temperatures. It becomes an expensive exercise and then you need the power. And unfortunately, with our power situation in the country on and off, you have to spend more money. You can have heating systems and then like me with a cooling system but I use air to cool the water. So it's just the flow of the water that enables it to cool. The ideal is to find the position, the natural way of doing it, or else your investment gets larger and larger, because then you'll need a generator. Fish can't survive without oxygen and the water temperature and has to remain reasonably constant and water temperature reasonably constant.
1: When it comes to aquaponic systems, what are the ideal plant types that farmers should look at?
3: There are really three groups of plants. So you have what we call leafy greens, and leafy greens are things like lettuce and celery and spinach and the herbs, things like mint and basil. Then we have the second group, which we call fruiting plants. Fruiting plants are things like tomatoes and cucumbers and those things. And then we have rooted plants. Now, rooted plants are, for instance, anything that grows under the ground, like a potato, radish and those. The rooting plants are not suitable within the aquaponics world because we don't use soil. We only use water and in some circumstances we use stone. The real choice is really not what you can grow, but what you can sell.
1: What are the kinds of challenges that you face in the aquaponics industry in South Africa?
3: One of them is the acceptability of our produce by retailers. We are on quite a large drive now, not to promote individual farms, but to promote the aquaponics, the growing science. It is healthy. We can't spray any insecticides or pesticides or anything on our plants. And it's a simple reason because that goes into the water and kills our fish. So we are forced not to. Our second major challenge in South Africa Larger retailers will only buy from you if you are certified Global Gap, which is an agricultural practice. Now, that's not an easy thing to get. So the smaller guy is really going to struggle to get there because we didn't have 200,000 Rand to throw at that certification. The guys are selling to individual retailers who are willing to put their produce on the shelves. But then ordering is low and it's not stable ordering, then they'll take, then they don't take. Plants only last that long, you can't leave them in the system forever.
1: Do aquaponic plants suffer from pest attacks or are there any types of diseases they're prone to?
3: We have to be very careful in our system. So any weak plant, you can immediately identify the plant is looking weak. We remove it out of the system because there are things like aphids and whitefly and these guys, they do attack the plants and they'll attack the weak plants. You have to have the discipline to remove the plant and not hope it's going to recover because by the time it possibly recovers, it's drawn the aphids. We do spray and we spray a repellent. It's not an insecticide or a pesticide, it's a bio friendly product and it's immediately edible and that chases away the baddies, the aphids and the white fly and things like that.
1: What are some of the most rewarding elements of being an aquaponics farmer?
3: Looking at the growth. For instance, the leafy greens, and let's use lettuce as an example. Our lettuce grows in 28 days. So you can physically see your plants grow because there's so much nutrients in there. And that is really a, very rewarding. And then the fun bit is to feed the fish because they are alive. They jump. They actually get so used to you approaching the dam, they know it's feeding time. We feed four times a day because you can see they're healthy, they're happy. If you're doing something right.
1: And finally, do you have any general tips or pieces of advice for aspiring aquaponics farmers?
3: First thing is do a course. Don't make the same mistakes that we made. You might think you have to spend the money, but you'll walk away with everybody else's mistakes in your back pocket. You don't only get the success story, you actually get the mistake story as well, so that you don't make the same mistakes. The second one really is do it. It is fun. You pull your hair out of your head. But it's like any business. You pull your hair out of your head. Sometimes you wonder why you did it. And you learn. And you learn your own system. That's where I started. I started having fun. And that's all I want to do now. I just want to do the aquaponics and do training and stuff. That's the fun bit. And see my plants grow and feed my fish.
0: We now switch things up and move to the energy crisis in Mzanzi. Now, according to author and energy expert James Stain. Stage 8 load shedding is a strong possibility with ESCOM's failing infrastructure. James, as South Africans, we've become so accustomed to blackouts and navigating our ESCOM power cuts. Could you start by painting a picture of where we're at in terms of energy generation in this country?
2: The state of electricity generation in South Africa has never been more weak or vulnerable. We've got about 46,000 megawatts of installed generation capacity in the country of which around 25,000 is just a little bit more than half is actually available on a regular continuous basis. This means the availability factor, that is the key benchmark for electricity generation is way below 70% for ESCOM to be able to ensure no load shedding got to be above 70% generally at the moment, it's trending around 60%, which is a very worrying uh, situation. Additionally, we've had blackouts now since 2007. It is now 2022, and in the last two to three years, we have not had a single new megawatt of new generation capacity added to the grid. So it does seem that there's also a lack of urgency, particularly on the national government level, with regards to addressing the problem. And you don't build the new generation capacity overnight. So it is a massively concerning situation. We are seeing electricity power stations are getting increasingly older. The average age of ESCOM's coal fired power stations is above forty years. Imagine you are driving a vehicle that's forty years old. It's going to break down more often. It's going to be more unreliable. It's simply not going to be able to provide the amount of work that it's supposed to be doing or that it would have done if it was a new model. These are of the factors that are massively concerning
0: how do we start changing our thinking to be less reliant on the main grid for energy in msanzi is living off the grid possible for us let's talk about renewable energy and getting it set up is it expensive especially for new farmers
2: it's going to be difficult to go off the grid in south africa i'd imagine but certainly we have got very good solar and especially for farmers I would imagine it's a very viable solution to look at renewable energy, particularly solar, simply because you you don't have to then rely on ESCOM's long power lines to also bring its electricity to what is often a very rural area. You might have cable theft that might be occurring that adds to the problem. So certainly getting off-grid in a rural community, especially in a farming area, is a very good option to explore. If I was a farmer, that's an option I would be exploring thoroughly in the long run recoup your investment i'm confident of that the way electricity prices are going you will certainly in the medium to long run but probably in the medium to short run to be honest at the way the cost of renewable power is going which is downwards you'll recover your cost of investment relatively quickly however it would require most likely quite a significant investment to be made so that might be something difficult for new farmers to be doing it might be expensive for a small suburban household, it costs about 250,000 rand, roughly, to go off the grid. So that's a small suburban household running a refrigerator, washing machine, electricity, like light, television, lights, microwave, basic things. And it's going to cost about 250,000, roughly. So for a farming operation, it might cost more than that. But in the long run, it is something that just makes sense if you can do it. I would certainly recommend it is something to consider.
0: Now, James, what happens if we continue on this trends with outages? Is Stage 8 load shedding possible?
2: Well, in the long run, we are not currently on a good trajectory. We have seen Stage 6 load shedding, which was the worst that we've ever had. We've heard rumblings of Stage 8. Given the global challenges at the moment, that's what's concerning and which is, remains a massive unknown. The global challenges, in particular the war in Europe, the challenges with gas and oil supply out of Russia, which is sending diesel and petrol and oil prices through the roof. It's not unlikely that stage 8 load shedding might be possible in the foreseeable future. ESCOM is heavily reliant on its diesel-operated turbines, which they switch on when load shedding is imminent. And they are running and burning, I think the amount was 19 million litres of diesel per day when they are running those turbines. So It's massively expensive and they just don't have the money to do it on a permanent basis and an ongoing basis, particularly if the price keeps increasing. So those are some of the concerning aspects, which means it's not entirely ridiculous to think that stage eight might very well be likely.
0: Now, any comments in closing? What should we be keeping top of mind as South Africans and farmers when it comes to energy generation in this country?
2: Electricity is going to getting increasingly expensive in South Africa. It's just uh, it's it's going to become increasingly unreliable. I think those are two indisputable facts, certainly for the short to medium term. And my concern is potentially for the longer term either. We are not seeing big investments coming to closure in terms of there's not one massive new power station being built at the moment. The last one that was started up was Madupi and Kusile power stations which was started up in 2007 and 2008, those power stations are still not completed and have multiple challenges. And now we are speaking about a 12, 13-year process. So even if we start building new power stations today, they will definitely not be completed within the next 10 years. And we've already been hit with low shedding stage six. We've got increasing diesel prices, which makes it very difficult for ESCOM to continue running into turbines as hard as they have a very challenging situation at the moment. We've also got ESCOM, which is pretty much bankrupt and out of money. It's an entity that's making losses in excess of 20 billion rand per year, which is enormous and unsustainable. So it's a very bleak situation. It's going to be very, very difficult to negotiate, and it's going to be something that all business sectors need to take cognizance of on a business continuity basis. There is some movement, however, in the independent sphere. We've seen municipalities like the city of Cape Town in particular being very vocal and very forward and pushing very hard to drive their own electricity procurement and generation. It's going to be interesting to see what those outcomes are. City of Cape Town projecting to be able to prevent load shedding in the city in the next five years and pushing very hard to do that. So if you have municipalities that are able to procure their own electricity and you have big businesses to do that do the same, we might see some positive news on that front. But certainly from ESCOM's side, it's going to be very difficult to see a turnaround in the situation if it left to them alone.
0: Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track, energy expert James Stone. You can read more on this topic on now we're back with our special feature with Meadowfeeds. And by the way, our recent article on dry cow management is now officially in the top 10 most read articles on Food for Zanzi. So the last time we spoke to Joubert Nolte, the National Technical Manager for Ruminants at Meadowfeeds, who unpacked the importance of the dry period in the dairy cow's lactation cycle. This week, Vian Kutsov, Ruminant Technical Advisor at Meadowfeeds, explains the importance of this transition. Vian, great to have you with us here on Farmers Insight Track. Welcome.
4: Thanks Dawn, it's an honor to be here.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: I'm Vian Kitshoff, current Ruminant Technical Advisor at Meadowfeeds located in Nepal. Grew up on a farm in the Swartland between Mamesburg and Reusburg. Graduated from the Stellenbosch University with a degree in Animal Science and Animal Production and thereafter got the opportunity to start with Meadowfeeds. Today
0: we're talking about the transition cow. In short, can you explain what is meant by that exactly?
4: When talking about the transition cow we are referring to the steam-up period, 21 days before calving, the actual calving when the calf is born, and the fresh period of the lactating cow. The cow undergoes a number of metabolic as well as physiological changes within this plus minus 46 days. When a cow is pregnant, Nutrients are needed for the maintenance and growth of the uterus, the fetus, the fetal fluids, the placenta and the uterine tissue as well as other development. All these factors must be given proper attention and a different nutritional requirements must be met with the different ration she receives.
0: Now Vian, could you elaborate on the three phases that you've just mentioned?
4: The first one is the steam up 21 days before calving. Now, typically a dry period when a cow is not producing milk is around 60 days from the cow's previous lactation to the next. When referring to the steam up period, we are talking about the last 21 days of the dry period just before calving. After lactation, when the cows are dried up, it takes about 25 to 30 days for the damaged mammary epithelial cells in the other to renew. Also, the rumen microbial population must migrate from an energy-dense lactation diet that was fed to the cow during lactation to a low-density diet typically higher in fiber in the dry period. This requires 14 to 21 days for the rumen to properly adjust and usually ends when the rumen microbes must adapt once again to an intermediate energy, prepartum or steam-up diet at around three weeks prior to calving, as mentioned. During this time the other undergoes drastic changes including the start of milk production which results in the reactivation and proliferation of milk secretory tissue. During this period of about 21 to 25 days, the udder is highly susceptible to infection.
0: Now, Vian, I really didn't understand that there were so many technical aspects. I knew that dairy production was intense, and a lot of farmers tell us that when we talk to them. But how would these infections come about?
4: As pressure builds up in the udder in preparation for colostrum and milk production, the udder is not being evacuated yet. This causes leakage from quarters, allowing bacteria to penetrate the teeth canal and cause infections such as mastitis. The termination of milk production is followed almost immediately by a period of rapid differentiation of the secretary tissue in preparation of the impending lactation as calving approaches. Fetal requirements strike precedence over the cow's own requirements for tissue maintenance, as the cow partitions most of her energy and nutrient intake to a growing calf. Besides giving proper attention to diet composition, especially fiber and energy concentrations, I would argue that how we manage the cows and diet allocation are equally important. We could have the best formulated diet with the best ingredients, but if cows do not have access to it, the diet composition would be irrelevant. In growing herds, especially, overcrowding during this critical phase can be a major challenge to cows. Thus, one of the main objectives during this period is not to only focus on diet composition, but also cow comfort in order to maximize dry matter intake.
0: Vian, I can see that you're a super expert on this, and I know that there's two more phases. What is the next two phases involve?
4: The second one is the actual calving. Now, during this period, the cow's appetite for food decreases dramatically in the last five days before calving. Dry matter intake decreases to almost zero in the last two days before calving and the biggest challenge in this period is to get the cow to start eating again as soon as possible after calving. Then, the fresh cow 21 days after calving. The period from birth to 21 days post calving is called the fresh cow phase and is characterized by a dramatic increase in nutrient requirements such as energy the urgent need for dry matter intake to increase and the functionality of the rumen to suddenly ferment and increase the amount of starch in the fresh ration. Now, together with practices mentioned before, other practices that can increase dry matter intake and modulate stress are keeping the number of pen movements at the minimum possible, to decrease the stress associated with the re-establishment of pen social hierarchy. Many of the practices described may mediate stress and inflammation to some degree, However, there are specific practices around calving that may have a greater effect. It is found that cows that experience a difficult calving had an elevated inflammatory response in the days after calving and subsequently a higher risk of developing diseases compared to cows that have experienced a normal calving. Therefore, timely identification and proper assistance of cows experiencing a difficult calving is critical to decrease inflammation and stress during this time. Thus, the main objective in the fresh period is to supply the cow with the needed nutrition while being in a negative energy balance but still maximizing milk yield for following lactation.
0: Now Vian, this sounds like a super sensitive process that needs to be watched very carefully. Let's talk about the feeding. What does the feeding of the transition cow entail?
4: The steam-up phase is characterized by a gradual decrease in feed intake as mentioned while nutrient requirements increase because of a fetus growing inside the cow. During these three weeks before calving, the cow is preparing herself to start the next lactation. Without adequate nutrition and management, cows can calve, fade quickly and lose potential income. As said, the fresh cow phase is characterized by a dramatic increase in nutrient requirements, especially energy, the urgent need for dry matter intake to increase and the functionality of the rumen to suddenly ferment an increased amount of starch. The post calving phase is the most important and vulnerable period for dairy cows as her metabolic needs increase dramatically. Her lactational performance is directly related to how she responds to the high energy transition period. Typical transition cow diseases such as metritis, retained placenta, ketosis, milk fever, rumen acidosis and mastitis may occur. These health problems usually have a major impact on the cow's lifetime production. However, the impact of the health problems can be drastically limited by the correct feeding and management of the transition cow. Such management also reduces stress and the energy cost of an activated immune response when these challenges occur.
0: Could you maybe highlight some of the struggles on a dairy farm with regards to the transition cow?
4: I'll highlight the most common ones, metritis. Metritis can shortly be described as inflammation of the inner uterus wall caused by a bacterial infection. It is characterized by abnormal, foul-smelling vaginal discharge, systemic signs of illness, with or without fever. It is most often diagnosed with the first 10 days after calving, but some cases may not be noticed immediately without further veterinary inspection. Another one is Mastitis. Mastitis is the inflammation of the mammary gland and other tissue, and is a major endemic disease of dairy cattle. It usually occurs as an immune response to bacterial invasion of the teeth canal by a variety of bacterial sources present on the farm and can also occur as a result of chemical, mechanical or thermal injury to the cow's udder.
0: Now Vian, you've highlighted a lot about the metabolic disorders. What are some of the struggles on a dairy farm with regards to the transition cow?
4: The transition cow often does not receive special treatment she is only part of the dry cow group, which Hubert spoke about, and is brought in to calf shortly before calving, after which he goes straight into the lactation group. This is not the ideal way to handle them. Transition cows should be treated differently and they should be kept separately and also fed a different ration. The dairy farmer who is willing to focus on and invest time and money in this important transition phase can much easier reach the maximum potential of his herd. Extensive research has shown that cows that are managed and fed correctly during this transition phase reach a peak production of about 2.5 liters higher than average and produce about 500 liters of milk more per lactation. Furthermore, the incidences of transitional cow diseases is about 25% lower and days open per cow are also significantly less. However, the dairy farmer must be committed to the following. To keep transition cows separate, provide additional steam up and fresh cow rations and to appoint or allocate a person to specifically pay attention to the transition animals.
0: Vian, could you put into perspective the cost involved when handling the transition cow as you've mentioned previously?
4: If you take an average milk price of 6 Rand a litre, feed cost dry matter based of 5 Rand per kilogram and a feed efficiency of 1.3 liters per kilogram. The additional income would be 3,000 Rand per Cow, the additional feed cost would be around one thousand nine hundred rand, and the extra margin over feed cost would be around one thousand rand. Now, say the farmer has a herd size of five hundred lactating cows, with each cow calving each year. That would mean plus minus around five hundred and thirty thousand rand higher margin over feed cost per year. Now, I know the requirements to properly feed and manage the transition cow includes extra facilities to handle steam up cows and the fresh cows separately and two additional rations, meaning longer mixing times, additional workers, extra fuel cost, etc. And even if the half a million is all used for these equipment and requirements, the farmer still has the advantage of better herd health, better reproduction of the cows, higher lifetime production, and be seen as a farm that knows how to look after its animals and act to the best possible interests of its animals.
0: Thanks for joining us, Vian Kutsov, Ruminant Technical Advisor at Meadow Feeds. Next up, and before we let you go, our book of the week, The Farming Handbook by Barry Smith. Terrianne Browse reviews this book for us. In this unique and highly informative book, the author deals with a range of agricultural subjects and enterprises. The book presents 150 thumb rules which can help farmers save time and effort. The author mainly focuses on conditions in South Africa, but the agricultural practices and principles can be applied everywhere. This book serves as a guide to natural resources and also includes information on field management, land assessment, agricultural engineering and irrigation. With all the knowledge and information in this book, the Farming Handbook is definitely an essential read for farmers, students and agricultural advisors.
2: Agriculture is not just about farming, it's about caring, and that's an ideal worth preserving. It's super fresh, it's super soft, and it makes a meal a treat. It's super SuperShore bread and super SuperShore flour. A proud member of the VKB group. From breakfast to lunch and even birthday cakes, Super SuperShore makes the whole family smile. Find SuperShore on Facebook or visit vkb.co.za for more info. VKB for the love of the land.
0: Thanks, Darian. Now that definitely sounds like a must-read if you're a farmer in this game. Remember, if you'd like to review this book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us at info at Now, before we let you go, our Farmer Top of the Week comes from Konsei Moraba, Agricultural Economist and Strategy and Operations Analyst at one of South Africa's leading agrochemical companies. She shares some of the most profitable small farm ideas every new farmer should know about. When we're talking
1: small farmer, in order for you to start making that money, there's a lot of investment initially. Then there's years before the trees actually start to be in full production. There's a lot of investment in terms of finding the right trees, you know, finding the right variety for your conditions. And also, it's an economies of scale type of market so when we're really looking at a small farming ideas, I wouldn't say that it's not viable, but it's definitely going to take a lot of years before you start to see the fruits of your labor. So if you're going into that market, you need to have a bit of capital to start with, and you definitely have to have patience because, like I said, you start seeing only your full production around year six, year seven.
0: And our Farmer Top of the Week from Agricultural Economist Kanse Moraba brings us to the end of this week's Farmers Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. For daily inspirational stories about the farmers and agriculturalists who really go above and beyond to feed South Africa, visit foodformzanzi.co.za or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter and plus don't forget to catch our weekly sessions on all things farming on Twitter spaces called Gather to Grow. Remember, if you love this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. And be sure to also check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Don Numdu, our producer Megan van der and the rest of the Food for
1: Zanzi team have a great
0: week. Bye for now.
1: Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Zanzi so much.